Support for Healthcare Americana comes from Freedom HealthWorks. With Freedom HealthWorks, physicians, employers, and patients can thrive in direct care. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com to start your journey into direct care today. From Freedom HealthWorks, it's Healthcare Americana, a show about innovators, idealists, and pioneers in healthcare. These are their stories. I am your host, Christopher Hayden. If you're one of those people who keeps asking themselves, why are healthcare prices so high? You're not alone. That was a great chart published by the Kaiser Family Foundation, and we've posted it on healthcareamericana.com for this episode, that looks at the growth of employment positions in hospitals split between physician and administrator jobs. Now, I realize it's 2020, but from 1970 to 2009, as this chart shows, our nation saw a 2,300% increase in healthcare spending per person. Again, that's 2,300%. This massive increase almost directly relates to a big time increase in the number of administrators employed by the hospitals. Now, what we mean by administrators is those in non-clinical roles. This number of administrators basically quadrupled in number between 1992 and 1995, a massive jump. If you're curious as to the number of doctors that were employed, well, we'll just say that it wasn't even in the same galaxy as that number. Now, what happens when layer after layer of waste is added on top of the interaction that happens between a doctor and a patient? If you said, well, that's gonna lead to price and cost increases to feed everybody, you're spot on. Joining me today is a reformed hospital executive and Sisson Health Chairman of the Board, John Chamberlain. Honestly, I think part of it comes from particularly the bigger hospitals that have a big endowment from their foundation. You know, the definition of a not-for-profit, the difference between a not-for-profit and a for-profit is, if you don't make a profit, I don't care what you call yourselves, you're not gonna be in business very long. But it's what you do with that profit is the differentiator. So maybe hospitals up until the pandemic were making so much money they had to figure out a way to spend it. And, oh, we could use another body in the C-suite. We have an empty office and that'll, you know, account for 150 grand a year. Wow, that helps that. So we understand that healthcare in its typical insurance hospital-based environment is very pricey if a patient can even get a price. There's some debate whether that is a price or a costing issue, but a key factor in this discussion is the amount of administrative mouths to feed in any hospital system. Um, The growth of healthcare administrative jobs, jobs with little no contact with patients, has significantly outpaced the growth of physicians, nurses, and care-related jobs. John, my question to you is, what is going on and why is this? Chris, I think a lot of this comes back to uh, how overregulated healthcare is today. And by that, I mean uh, the regulations that must be met, the compliance that must be in place to even get paid under you know, our traditional fee-for-service reimbursement system. Yeah. The move to value-based care is, in my opinion, kind of a, a moniker. Um, it doesn't really show a whole lot. By that, I mean... You know, this this focus a few years back on these accountable care organizations was a miserable failure. And I think as long as we are continuing to see healthcare as regulated as it is, we're going to continue to see this astronomical growth in administrative bodies, if you will. 
and that does nothing but drive up the cost. Oh, absolutely. Again, like I said, you know, you have all these mouths to feed and all kinds of different rules and, and loopholes and, and hoops to jump through and nobody can really keep track of that. You did mention the ACOs. Give us a little bit of background in your experience with ACOs and why they did fail so miserably. Honestly, I think there are a couple that are still extant, but I think originally under the uh, CMS ACO program, there were 23, if I remember correctly. And I think only about three of those are in existence today. And I think they failed because, honestly, there were too many hands in the, in the pot. And it was instead of doing what it was started out to what it should have been doing, it turned into a way, oh, good, how can I make money off of this myself, whether as a physician or as a hospital or as, you know, a large clinic. And instead of doing what it was supposed to have done, it set out to do something completely different. And again, <laughs> There's an old saying, money is the root of all evil. It's especially true in healthcare. And I think that's the biggest reason they failed. Combine that with the fact that the majority of them didn't live up to the CMS tenets, the indicators that CMS was looking for as far as actual accountable care. Mm -hmm. They lost focus. They went to see how much money they could generate for the participants. And as usual, patients get lost in the mix and CMS pretty much killed the program. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like that saying. And I think they, uh, the, the saying is, is you know, the, the love of money is, is the root of all evil. And when you get talking about the love of money coming from nonprofit organizations, we're going to touch upon that in a little bit. But you start to see some of these things kind of slide into, slide into position as, well, wow, that's, that's really screwed up. I never thought of charities. You know, hospitals are, by definition, nonprofits and therefore essentially charities how they play a, play a role in driving up the costs and the pricing of healthcare. But going back to what you said about the regulations, I know, I've, I know you've mentioned a lot in your work about um, the HMO acts, uh, high tech acts that bring EMRs into the forefront. Give us a little bit of, of um, your insight into kind of the early days when things started to, to change, when things started to drive the increase in administrators. 1965, Medicare, Medicaid, part of the um, Lyndon Johnson era. Great goals and ideals. That brought in a whole new set of regulations. Of course, as you, I'm sure, know, for the longest time, for 18 years after Medicare, Medicaid, it was all on a cost-based reimbursement. So hospitals submitted cost reports. Medicare, Medicaid had come up with an idea that, you know, we're going to pay you your cost plus maybe a bump. Of course, that incented hospitals to pad their cost reports. Yeah. So it's never a, never a simple solution. There he is, and we'll get to that later. Um, so in 83, when the uh, DRGs, the diagnosis-related groups, came out, that went from cost-based to a prescribed payment based on all sorts of data. And so hospitals no longer used a cost report. They still had to file them, but they were trying to figure out how to get cost out of the system instead of adding cost to the system because they were only going to get a set, set amount of money per, at that time, 469, I think, diagnosis-related groups. And that started the ball rolling. So with, with just that, administrators, particularly on the financial side, were brought in director-level people to figure out how to deal with the, the diagnosis-related groups. Then you go on further in, in you know, along, and as you said, the High Tech Act, the safe harbors for 
GPOs and PBMs and so forth and so on. Actually, go back right after Medicare, you had the, um, the HMO Act of uh, 71, which also added uh, more uh, requirements for administrators as opposed to clinicians. So everything that was done, and you're referring to that graph, which I have put out a gazillion times, uh, which shows with each successive regulation, major regulation, the cost continues to, to climb. And that really is the, the bottom, the, the basis for this. Um, how do we get reimbursed when we are working with either the government or with insurance companies? How do we maximize reimbursement? Yeah. Which goes into a whole nother area. But yeah. That's, yeah. that's pretty much it. And even the term reimbursement signifies something by its definition that really doesn't apply because why are, why are physicians getting reimbursed for services and, and things that they do anyways? And why don't we just call them getting paid for it? Then exactly. you open the debate of who the actual payer is and stuff. So, you know, a lot of the vocabulary that's involved in healthcare is just kind of head scratching when you, when you try to dig below the surface of it. But, you know, you were talking about a lot of these positions were created we'll get into calling them wasted positions or admin because of regulations. In your experience, what kind of, I'm going to call them alphabet soup titles are we talking about with the men and, men and women who are running the hospital uh, over the past 30, 40 years? The latest one I heard, and I think I mentioned it earlier to Melissa, was the chief transition officer. Okay, I know a CTO is usually a chief technical officer, let's say, on, in big tech on the healthcare side. Right. What is the chief transition officer? Transition to what? Value-based care? I, I mean, I really have no idea. But yet another body, warmer otherwise, in the C-suite, is probably making 100 grand, you know, a year plus benefits. And I still don't, I didn't really spend a lot of time, honestly, because I don't have that time to spend, to try to determine what a chief transition officer is. But mm -hmm. to go back a little further, we had the CIO, the chief information officer, the chief quality officer, the chief nursing officer, yada, 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 yada. And the last hospital I ran, it was me and a head nurse. And I had a quality person, but they also did three other jobs. So, I mean, it's just gotten bizarre. Is it a reason or an excuse? I, I don't know. Honestly, I think part of it comes from particularly the bigger hospitals that have a big endowment from their foundation. You know, the definition of a not-for-profit, the difference between a not-for-profit and a for-profit is if you don't make a profit, I don't care what you call yourself, you're not going to be in business very long. But it's what you do with that profit is the differentiator. So maybe hospitals up until the pandemic were making so much money they had to figure out a way to spend it. And, oh, we could use another body in the C-suite. We have an empty office, and that'll, you know, account for 150 grand a year. You know, wow, yeah. uh, that's, that, that helps that. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it's interesting that you say that because they're adding bodies to it while at the same time, you know, you mentioned that hospitals were trying to cut costs and figure out how to enhance their profit margin. So it just seems like a backward type of logic of, well, we only earn money when we see patients, yet we're not going to add any more clinical positions and we're going to stack costs and layers on top of those doctors to make them miserable. I don't understand how that's a winning, <laughs> winning formula. 
Well, there's only two ways to increase profit, additional revenue or cut costs. That's the tried and true accounting principle. So mm-hmm. if, if you're going to add bodies and add to your cost, where's the extra revenue coming from? And that's the whole premise behind all this. Because you're right, at a certain point, employed primary care docs seeing 40 patients a day, there's an end game there somewhere, mm-hmm. and especially with EMRs. So I think, I think both ends are limited in what you can do for cost reduction and revenue enhancement. Before we continue, a quick word from our sponsors. There comes a time when the man of the house must take charge. Family planning is a tough conversation for many. And at Happy Dad Vasectomy, we understand that decision isn't easy. When your family is complete, our no-needle, no-scalpel, no-stitches procedure will give you peace of mind about your family's future. Happy Dad Vasectomy conveniently books appointments within two weeks of calling and has locations in central and northern Indiana. Visit happydadvasectomy.com to learn more. Happy Dad Vasectomy, the easiest part of family planning. Going back to the, the nonprofits versus profits, do you think that the tax-exempt status of nonprofit hospitals is a factor in accountability and trying to oh, run the best business possible? No, I think it's probably a disincentive because the tax-exempt status is, I think, probably the most accurate descriptor of these tax-exempt hospitals. Not-for-profit is a misnomer. It's a designation under the IRS 501c3, which says that they don't have to pay taxes, which translates down to the local level. They don't have to pay property taxes. So tax exempt is probably more an accurate descriptor. And I think it's probably a disincentive to run better. Having worked both sides of the industry, I can guarantee you that the for-profit side is much more focused on operational performance and accounting and all these things that a business should do, not to say that the not-for-profits, there are some not-for-profits that are very good at that, but the majority of them, that kind of gives them some breathing room. Mm -hmm. Oh, we don't have to pay taxes. Oh, we don't pay property taxes. We can build another palace and not have to worry about property tax, which is a whole nother story, um, these marble palaces. But at any rate, I I think the for-profits are better at it from a business standpoint. Yeah, and that's, that's interesting you say that because they just take the revenues. And I know here locally in Indianapolis, there's a hospital system that posts record profits every single year. I'm sitting here thinking, you guys are supposed to be a nonprofit. What are you doing with that cash? Turns out they're going out and buying other physicians. Um, you know, some of those independent practices that are trying to do what's right for their constituents, do what's right for their community, yet they can't compete with this massive territory grab that's going on. So how does this territory grab, and a lot of that came from the ACA and Obamacare for consolidation. I feel like independent physicians, if they are still out there, you know, fewer and fewer each year, have really gotten, uh, they gotten screwed over. You know, there's no, there's no good way to put this. So, what's the impact for independent practice? Are we going to see it pop back up, or is it something of a bygone era? There's two things, in my opinion, that are driving that horrible practice. I think the last number I saw was 51% is probably higher now. 51% at minimum are employed. Two things driving that, one from each side. Facility fees for the hospital that goes out and buys that practice. And on the physician side, it's debt. 
and government, <laughs> here they go again, <laughs> are responsible for both. Mm-hmm. They capped residencies almost 20 years ago, yep. uh, 23 years ago. Yep, we just, uh, we just talked about that in a previous episode. You don't have enough residency slots. You've got physicians coming out of medical school that can't find a match. On the facility fee side, you take a physician in your hospital office building who was an independent, and you buy that practice. Physician hasn't moved, isn't seeing any different number of patients or type of patients, or doing anything different, and the hospital makes more money. That's a no-brainer if you're a hospital. Go out and find an independent practice that's struggling and make them a low ball offer. Say, I'm going to put you on salary. You get a check every two weeks. And yeah, we'd like you to see X number of patients, but you're going to get a paycheck every two weeks. You don't have to file any claims. You have to, you know, do the EMR, right? Mm-hmm. But it's very attractive, especially the folks coming out of residency that have a $200,000 debt they're staring at. And I think that's awful. It may end up getting, uh, you know, you hear burnout a lot. I think it's kind of occupational abuse on some level, but they just don't understand. They don't read the fine print and then they get RVUs thrown their way. And guess what? You don't get your bonus anymore and you're working two, three times harder than you ever thought you would be for nothing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame. And I think the, the facility fee problem is one way we can address that. And that's CMS did agree that office visits, E&M codes, they struck down the facility fees. Of course, it's under contest. Sure. But the big money is going to be in the, in the procedures, and that's still in play. Right, right, right. So speaking of <laughs> procedures and facilities, let's talk about physician-owned hospital surgery medical centers and kind of a phenomenon that came out of the ACA. Again, whether this was an intended or an unintended consequence of, again, government action no longer able to have physician-owned hospitals because the powers that be thought that incentives were going to be misaligned with patient care. What's your reaction to that? Well, having built a physician-owned hospital with a group of physicians, that's hogwash. As in anything in this world, in some instances, that's probably true, but that's not the entity itself. That's not the concept. That's the individuals involved. I know that the hospital we built together from DIRT The physicians knew from the get-go they were not qualified, nor were they interested in any of the business aspects. They wanted to see patients, take care of patients, do the best technology they could afford, make patients better. And they left it up to us, the business people, to make that happen. And we did. Mm -hmm. We ran that hospital for four years. Uh, It was sold at the end of four years to a for-profit company. And, you know, that's not true. And I, I think probably one of the best things that could happen today would be the reinstatement of the ability for physicians to own hospitals. You, you may want to tighten it up to guidelines a little bit, but I, I think that's a, that's a mis, a misconcept. Yeah. And that, that to me, you know, from what I've read in research was because of fear that if somebody is referring a patient to a hospital or a surgery center that they have a business stake in, then, you know, you have a conflict of interest and I'm scratching my head saying, well, doesn't that happen with any type of hospital network where legally you're not allowed to mandate that your employees refer only to your hospital? But I think the numbers come back like 97, 99% of referrals happen in a vertical within the network. So again, they didn't accomplish anything besides strip out some of the most market-friendly and competitive priced surgery centers. Right. And I think that's 
I laugh at that, honestly, because every employed doctor, while they cannot be required as a part of their contract, because you wouldn't want to put that in writing, they are heavily incented to refer internally. And that's a problem because the best quality may not be internal. Right. And they know that. And so it's kind of a, it puts an onus on the doctor. Wow. I know my friend that's not in the network has a much better quality rating. I know that person. I trust that person. They do great work. And yet I'm forced, quote unquote, to refer internally. Right. Yeah. It, uh, it's peeling back the layers on something, a debate that grabs headlines, but yet people just stop at the headline and don't try to research it further. And that a lot of medical professionals, for whatever reason, were really silent when these things started to happen there. So, again, looking at the shutdown of independent practices, looking at the legal closure, the mandated closure of independent competitive surgery centers that that were owned by physicians there, a lot of regulations coming down from local, from state, from federal governments, and the amount of text in the ACA, if, if any of our legislators out there actually got around to reading it, you know, I'd, I'd love to take a poll of, of Congress at that time and see who actually read the ACA. So all these things, <laughs> you're saying zero. zero. Yeah, zero. Yeah, probably zero. still. You know, we got we to gotta pass it to figure out what's in it uh, type of mentality here. A lot of this stuff has created this environment in healthcare where if you talk to somebody running these hospitals, they say it's too confusing for the average person or the average physician to figure this thing out. So just trust us. Don't ask about pricing. Don't ask about quotes. Most recently that came about with legislation or executive orders mandating that hospitals display their prices and they put it out in, you know, what I consider to be kind of WordPad format from the late nineties there, which is all just a jumble of wingdings and numbers. You can't make heads or tails of it. I mean, how are people supposed to trust this type of a system that is, been put in place by the written power of the pen. When you pick apart, and I agree with you, the word pad comment about the EO, but the nuts and bolts of the EO are pretty simple. And that's what AHA, FAH, AMA, AHIP all jumped on. They saw what it was going to mean. They weeded through all the gobbledygook and saw that they were going to actually have to provide contractually negotiated pricing for every service that they contracted with a hospital for, and the hospital on the other side had to list every carrier and the prices. Well, is that doable? Sure. Is it a pain in the butt? Sure. But they didn't want to divulge what was behind the curtain. And for good reason. When you go in and look at a charge master price for a hospital stay and you look at what the allowable is, the allowable reimbursement from insurance company X, it's significantly lower. And that's what they don't want you to see. Mm-hmm. The other reason for that is if they have to put those prices out there, then people could actually shop for care. And there are 91% of the last number I saw, 91% of the people polled in whatever poll it was, want that ability. 61% said they would shop. Now, you're not going to shop for cancer care, probably, or triple vessel bypass. You may. Or, or or emergency care. We hear emergency right. care as as the one that uh, the one exception right. that people you know. But the reality is that's less than twenty percent of the care. Mm-hmm. So eighty percent of the care or higher that people need every day is what I call routine care: lab tests, imaging, office visits, minor procedures, whether they're in a surgery center or otherwise. 
And the beauty is for those surgery centers like Surgery Center of Oklahoma that doesn't take insurance, they don't have those restrictions. It's only the, the facilities, hospital-owned or otherwise, that take insurance that have those restrictions placed on them. So I know they had a hearing recently on that lawsuit that the AHA brought. And I don't think there was anything decided. They're supposed to look at it again in October, of course, right prior to the election. And they won't do anything about any of that until after the election, sometime I think in early 21. But that alone, that one significant change would make a huge difference for independent physicians, for independent surgery centers, imaging centers, labs, et cetera. Uh, And it would make a huge impact, positive impact on the cost of care. I love these discussions because they get you thinking about so many different things and so many different factors that are going in there. And we talked about, you know, the confusion, uh, like you were saying, and then there's some efforts to try to fix that and, and not, but that confusion has driven the growth of a lot of the costs and a lot of the, the price increases, the administrative personnel in the office. So, you know, hypothetically, if I'm a doctor and I see my colleagues and we're treated like robots on assembly line, new positions keep getting created and filled by people who have no clinical responsibilities and no responsibility to patient care whatsoever. I'm justifiably going to be more and more upset. And I'm facing a choice, right? Either I'm going to leave medicine, I'm going to go to a different employer, it's probably going to get more of the same thing. Or for if I'm really enlightened, I'm going to go into the direct care world and see that as a solution to all this stuff. But you know, my question for you is, are people looking at this and saying, you know, I'm tired of being a doctor. I'm getting the run around. I'm getting pushed beyond my limits. I want to go be a hospital administrator. Are physicians looking at administration as the desired career path when they go into medicine these days? I think a lot have in the past. Obviously, when CMOs, chief medical officers became popular, physicians and typically older and ready to retire or ready to start winding their practice down, that was a very attractive option for them. Again, most of those positions are filled, so I don't think that's necessarily a great target. You see a lot of docs going into administration, let's say on the technical side for, for tech, you know, that have an interest in, in tech applications in, in hospitals. So there's some positions available there. I'm not sure that's their first thought. I think more of them are thinking and, and agreed, you know, we're talking about those that are already employed. They're tired of doing that. They want to do something else. Do they look at hospital administrative positions uh, as an option? I think some do, that being the question. But I think a lot more are interested in direct care opportunities. And the doctors that I talk to, both those coming out of residency and those that are on the other end of, of the cycle, it's very interesting to them. And they really are skeptical. They don't know. You know, I've, I've been talking with a guy who's a CMO for the local hospital. He's an ER doc. I talked to an ER doc just the other day. And I, he was saying a lot of his buddies are getting furloughed. And, you know, he's yep. worried about them. And I said, there's always direct care. And he goes, oh, no, I'm not a primary care doctor. I'm an ER doctor. And I said, think about what you just said. How much trauma do you actually see out of your milieu of patients? He said, well, and he kind of, if you could sheepishly grin over a text message, he was sheepishly grinning. He goes, yeah, you know, you're right. How much primary care do you see as an ER doc? A lot. Mm -hmm. Is it appropriate? No. But you're still seeing it. And, you know, a lot of it's been peeled off by urgent care. But what is an urgent care? 
what do they see primarily? Primary care. Yep. That's why you see kind of a new concept coming up now where you've got DPC slash urgent care. Well, that's true. That's what it, that's what it is. Depends on, you know, how much of one or the other, but I, I, I really don't see them looking at, at administrative positions as fondly as they used to because they've seen it from one side. Why would they really want to go do that on the other side? Plus having to have the onus on them to reprimand previous colleagues. Right. And I would add there too, that a lot of those CMOs, the chief medical officers, they realize that they don't have any power. They don't have any influence. They're there as a figurehead. Right. They do what they're told. Yeah, they do what they're told and say, hey, keep your doctors in line. This is your job. But zero input on business decisions, you know, let alone financial operation, anything like that. They're just a figurehead because they needed somebody with an MD or a DO sitting in that chair. Well, one of my favorite comments from hospital administrators of late is, and this is true, I don't need you. I need your license. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> and that's, that's a verbatim comment. Wow. Wow. That'll put you in good stead with your medical staff. Yeah, that really shows them uh, the importance of what they know and what their experience is. And you that know, part I, is, it's true. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, just to add to that, um, I had a conversation with a with a CMO here locally, and and we got talking about quality and, and what that really means because that quality in healthcare is a very ambiguous term. It can mean a lot of different things, or it could be nothing. It could mean a lot. Um, obviously, in the direct care world, quality is if somebody comes back and pays you the membership next month because they trust you and want your care. He said, uh, he said, Chris, quality is whatever the government or the insurance company, whoever's paying the bill, tells us it is. And that changes from month to month. Yeah. And well, I, almost, you know, I almost spit out my coffee saying, wait, are you, are you serious here? That's how you judge quality of care by whatever the insurance company or whatever the Medicare program is going to pay you for? Well, I mean, you want to take it down another level. You know, quality was the driving fact behind, one of the driving factors behind EMRs. And what, what happened right away, people figured out how to game the EMR. I mean, when you get doctors talking to one another in a setting and they say, hey, I see you've got a, a you know, you tell me you've got a lot of level fives. How are you... Uh, how are you getting those approved? Oh, well, I do this. And so next thing you know, we're cutting and pasting in the EMR from one doc to another to drive revenue. Why is that? Because I have a productivity incentive or I have a revenue incentive. Now, does that happen industry-wide? No. Mm-hmm. But, you know, quality used to mean, and, and it's never really been defined, um, in my opinion. And there was a guy from the University of Michigan, a guy named Davidis Donabedian. And Dr. Donabedian, not an MD, a PhD, spent the majority of his career trying to define healthcare quality, 20 plus years. I look at that, you know, I look at it more as value. What's the value I receive from my expense? And and I look at it from a personal standpoint. If I'm happy with my primary care doctor and I'm happy with my insurance company, I get a perceived value out of that. Now, that's, you know, divided by cost. So, you know, I'm trying to divine quality in that, in that way. That's the way I look at it. Sure. Sure. And that brings us, you know, to the last topic here and, and, you know, cost is such a special four letter word in healthcare. 
from my experience outside of a direct care environment, nobody really knows the cost or nobody really is able to tell you or wants to tell you, you know, as you said early. So, you know, I always like to, to not just identify problems, but identify ways we can help fix it or people out there can, can, you know, uh, help be part of this solution here. So, you know, my question for you is, what is the solution? Is, is direct care going to be the panacea, the fix-all for everything? Or are there different avenues where we can push forward together? Price transparency is going to be key because even in direct care, you know what your direct care costs are. You pay a set fee per month and you know what you're getting for that set fee per month. It's when you go outside that arrangement you don't have any idea, especially if you go through a hospital. And you call a hospital and you say, my doctor says I need an MRI. How much is it going to cost me? Well, what's your insurance? First question. Yep. I don't have insurance. <laughs> I don't have insurance. Oh, you get transferred three or four times. And the final answer is we don't know because they don't know. Right. Now, if you had insurance, you could go to column A and say, oh, we have Blue Cross Blue Shield. Your out-of-pocket expense is going to be X. And then you say, well, I'd like to know what the total cost is. Well, we, we don't know that. We just, we can give you an estimate. We'll give you a range. Well, I can call Touchstone or Green Imaging and they'll give me a price, cash price, boom, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Put it on a credit card, do whatever, I'm done. I don't have to worry about deductibles. Or, and, and then, of course, the standard response is when you talk to somebody and say, look, you can go down the street and get that MRI for 250 bucks. Well, does it apply to my deductible? <laughs> no. Right. Right. Are you spending it out of your pocket regardless? Yeah. I said, okay, we'll do the math. Right. You know, have you ever met your deductible? Well, no. I said, case closed, but people don't think. Yeah. Well, and everybody can do their part on that one. You don't, you don't need to start uh, just jump head first, but even calling up and asking about, pricing from anybody's medical professionals from hospitals to surgery centers to your primary care. Um, if people get in the habit of just calling them and asking them, you know, those offices will probably start to get the message and little things can start to change that way. So John, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, your inputs always appreciated. Love what you guys are doing. So, um, again, thanks for taking the time to join us. Yes, sir. Thank you, Chris. Enjoyed it. John Chamberlain, Chairman of the Board, Citizen Health. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, Chris. Take care. Healthcare Americana is powered by Freedom HealthWorks, managed by Melissa Turpin, produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Send us your thoughts at info at healthcareamericana.com. I'm Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry, and we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. And hey, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, let us know that too. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.